0: to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Well, we are like I mentioned, we're going to dive in deep into a subject that is is widely uh, misunderstood, I think, amongst the body of Christ. And but it's important and it's critical and, and we're going to talk about why today why it's important to understand the kingdom and what it's all about and the various aspects of it throughout scripture. And so we're, we're going to take two weeks on it actually, this week and next week. So we're not quite finished with chapter 12. We're, we're so close. We're like right on the edge. Uh, Doc is asking me to please hurry because he wants to get to the overview of pro- prophecy in the Bible and what's going on in the world. And, and we'll get there, Doc, I promise. Yes. <laughs> he, he's Yeah, in July, before Independence Day, we'll get there. Promise. So we're we're gonna make it. And um, but today so we're gonna finish chapter twelve in this week and next week, and then we'll go through thirteen really quick. It's just closing remarks in the book of Hebrews, and then we'll dive into prophecy in the Bible and, and get an overview of what does God's word say and what's going on in the world all around us, so that we can all have eyes to see and ears to hear what's going on in the world. It's just it's so critical to build up our faith in that way, and to be able to look at the headlines through a prophetic lens of the Word of God. So before we open up today and and close out or start this this first part of this two-part series, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And we always want to open up before we study God's Word with prayer and petitioning the Holy Spirit to teach us everything. Lord, we thank you for this time together. God, we thank you so much for Your word, God, we thank you from 1 John 2.27 that, God, you are our teacher. The anointing that abides in us teaches us all things that we need no man to teach us. And, God, we cling to that promise that what we are studying in the word of God, we don't have to rely on ourselves to understand it, to teach it, or to learn it, but it's by your Holy Spirit. And we pray this morning that you would teach us everything that you would have of us, out of these, these scriptures, Lord. Be with us and be with our children down the sidewalk and let peace abide in that space and teach them, Lord, build up warriors for your kingdom from a young age. In the world they are growing up in, God, it is so different than the world that most of us grew up in. So please gird them with strength and faith and perseverance, and endurance to run this race that you're setting before them. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you remember last week, we finished the fifth of the five warnings. So the entire book of Hebrews is built around these five warnings, the danger of drifting, the danger of hardening the heart, the danger of failing to mature, the danger of willful sin, and the danger of refusing. And if you remember In Hebrews, it goes, it's an order, right, where each one of those progresses and builds off the other. You start to drift away, your heart gets hardened, you fail to mature, you start to commit willful sin, and then you refuse God. And it ultimately culminates with apostasy. And kind of like we covered last week, it starts to go the other way then. Once you get to the danger, the refusal, then you commit more willful sin, you fail to mature even more, your heart is hardened even further and you drift even further away. And then it goes again the other way. So it's this progression, almost like a sine wave, but it, it moves like a snake. We talked about that last week. But these warnings are here because of the kingdom. You know, you and I, we have something ahead of us that we can lose that has nothing to do with our salvation once you are in God. You and I have an inheritance laid up for us on the other side of this, if you are faithful and endure to the end. And that's why there are so many warnings in the scripture about hold fast what you have, that no man takes your crown, as Jesus said in Revelation three. You have something that you need to hold on to that you can lose and it's not your salvation. And if you rightly divide the word of truth between salvation and then the sanctification process of what we're doing after being saved, then all of this starts to make sense. And so as we're going to dive into this this subject today about the kingdom, let's, let's keep a couple things in mind. Because in the New Testament, there are two different phrases used back and forth in the Gospels specifically, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And it's my my own speculation that these are two different things. And so what I'm encouraging all of you to do is to take this to the word of God and find this out on your own. Uh, do not take my word for it. So Acts 17, 11, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. So take everything that we're talking about, not just today, but every single Sunday, and go back to the word of God yourself and prove it to be so. Don't, don't take my word for it. I'm just a man. I study the, the Bible just like you all. I write things down. I ask the Lord questions. And really, I just bring to you what I share, what I find, and what I think uh, out of God's word. But 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. See, God's word is very specific. I, I, I lean to the view of the scripture that God says exactly what he means. And so if he uses a word or a phrase, it is intentional and by design. That's just my view. And I think the more you study the word of God, you will find that to be true, that you too can take it more literal every time you study it that he means exactly what he says. He doesn't want you guessing. Uh, He wants you to know exactly what God says. Now, that being the case, three times in God's word, he says not to add or take away from his word. It's twice in Deuteronomy and once in Revelation, and the the verses are there. Deuteronomy 4.2, Deuteronomy 12.32, and Revelation 22, 18 through 19. So we have to take God at exactly what he says. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Remember, that's how Eve fell. God said, don't eat of the tree. And then the serpent comes to her, and she says, well, God said, don't eat of it or touch it. He never said that. God didn't say not to touch it. He said, don't eat of it. So she added to his word, and thus we all fell with her because Adam willingly joined her in her place as a type of Christ to join his bride in her, in her predicament of redemption. So as we closed Hebrews 12 last week, the Lord makes a statement about a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's in the last verse here in Hebrews 12, 28. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. And so what are the primary themes of the word of God? You know, if you think about it, obviously it's Jesus Right? He's on every single page of the Bible, Psalms 40, verse 7. In the volume of the book, it's written of me, said Jesus. Uh, God's plan of redemption, Right, that's on, in every book of the Bible. You can find God's plan of redemption modeled in just about every single book of the Bible. But I think one that's often overlooked is that it's also about a kingdom. The whole Bible, from beginning to end, is about a kingdom, what was the first quote chronologically in the Word of God? It was not in Genesis. The first quote in the Bible, in chronological order, so to speak, is found in Isaiah 14. It's not even from God Himself, it's from Satan. If you remember between Genesis 1:1 1, 1 and 1-2, that's when Satan rebelled, the angels rebelled with him. God judged the earth because they had dominion over the earth. Remember in Job. The angels cheered when the earth was created, so they were created before Genesis 1-1. The earth fell, it became confused, God's not the author of confusion, so the earth became tohu Vibohu in the Hebrew, it became uh, darkness and confusion was upon it, and then God spent those six days putting it all back together because it was a, a gift for the angels, they were given dominion over this. Well, the first core of the Bible is Satan's attack on God's throne, on his kingdom. It's Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. How art thou fallen? thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, so here's God quoting Satan, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne. Satan had a throne. He had a throne. A lot of ancient Jewish, Jewish scholars think that his throne may have been on the moon. Some think it was on the earth somewhere. It's hard to say, but... That'll be interesting to find out once we get on the other side of this. Ask the Lord. Lord, what, what were all these other planets about? And why did you even create this? And what did the angels rebel and attack with? You know, how did they attack you? But the first, I find this fascinating. The first quote chronologically in the Bible is an attack on a kingdom. An attack on God's throne and his kingdom. You know, it's difficult growing up in a constitutional republic with, with elections, if you can use that word today. To really relate with what it means to live in a kingdom right with a with a monarch with someone ruling with a crown who who has a throne that 's established that rules over a nation or a land, right we live in this this place where there 's somebody different ruling over the nation every four to eight years. Uh, there are different members that make make up laws in Congress and in Senate and People come in and out from the private sector to the public sector and back and forth and trying to, to govern a nation. So it's kind of difficult, right? It's hard, for me personally at least, it's difficult to relate with what it means to live under a kingdom and with a king who doesn't just leave and sit off his throne all once in a while but is there forever until they die or pass it on. But that's exactly what you and I operate within and live within. We're in and operating within a kingdom, if you're born again. And whether you live in the United States or otherwise, but we live in a kingdom. We, we really operate in a kingdom that's more real than, than the nation we live in. So we need to get used to the idea that if we're born again, we are going to, to live and operate within a kingdom forever. Not just temporarily, not just a thousand years when Christ is on the earth, but forever forever. And It's coming, and we, you and I, if you're born again, we get the opportunity to help establish that kingdom in Revelation 19. We are the ones that come back with Christ when the heavens open, and that white horse comes down, and Jesus is riding it, and what's on his thigh written, a name written, King of Kings. He's a king. He's going to establish a kingdom, and you and I get the chance to set up that kingdom When you look at the word king in the Bible, it shows up 2,364 times. It's a lot. Kings, plural, shows up 334 times. Prince, 103. Princes, 273. Throne, 176. Thrones, 9. And kingdom, 342 times. Kingdoms, plural, 57 times. That's 3,658 occurrences of something kingdom-related. And that's barely scratching the surface. You could dive in even deeper than that. And so I just, I share that with you because I want you to get the idea that this is, this is all throughout the Bible. It's about a kingdom. It's about a king. It's about land and dominion. Adam was created as a king. He was given dominion. In Genesis 1, through 28, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. See, to have dominion, you need to be a ruler over something, right? A king or a prince or something. In the Bible, in the the Hebrew and the Greek too, king and prince can sometimes mean the same thing. But over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth. See, Adam was given rulership over the earth. Satan forfeited it. It's why Satan has been battling to get it back ever since then. Adam was given it. And he was tasked with creating and, and multiplying, I should say, and reproducing a sinless, eternal human race that would repopulate the earth and probably outer space because at some point you would fill up the earth, but the other planets perhaps, and, and even that idea, you can see it twisted by, by uh, different branches of the church, right, that you're going to inherit a planet or something like that. Anyway. In any case, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female, created he them, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish. That's the same word God used with Noah after the flood. Replenish, to replenish something means there was something there before. And this again gets into the the fall of Lucifer and the attack by the angels between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. The earth was filled. It was filled with these angels and they rebelled against God and God wiped them out. So Adam's tasked with replenishing, replenish the earth. And it's the exact same word in the Hebrew that he tells Noah after the flood, go out and replenish, meaning there was something there before. So Noah was a king who was given the same dominion mandate in Genesis 9:3. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb, have I given you all things. He was given dominion. Noah was given dominion. And all through the Bible, it's this fight for a kingdom. It's always about a kingdom. Moses was a king. In Deuteronomy 33 verses 4 and 5, Moses commanded us a law, even the inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. And he was a king. He was king in Jeshuron, when the heads of the people and the tribes of Israel were gathered together. Moses was a king. You don't often think of Moses as a king, but he was. Isn't that interesting that he he had some rulership somewhere? The kingdom under Israel starts to fall apart after David. If you remember after David dies, they split into civil war. They have the northern and the southern kingdom, and Rehoboam and Jeconiah ultimately ends the the Davidic line with a blood curse that we're going to look at in a minute, but this kingdom under David, God promises David that his offspring will have a kingdom forever in 2 Samuel 7, 8, and 9. Now therefore shalt thou say unto my servant David, thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote from following the sheep to be ruler over my people over Israel, And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name like unto the name of the great men that are here, that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. That's interesting, that they, move, they will move no more. Well, they were dispersed in 70 AD. They finally were regathered on May 14th in 1948. And according to the Bible, they will never move again once they come back the second time. The first time they were taken in Babylon, in the Babylonian captivity, they returned. They were dispersed a second time in, in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed by the Roman legions and the Israelites were dispersed all over the world. And God promises in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel that when he gathers them the second time, they shall never be dispersed again. And that's literally what some of, I didn't get to see it, but in my lifetime, but what some of you maybe saw on May 14th of 1948. Israel was born a nation in one day, never to be moved again. But that's what God promises also here in 2 Samuel 7. I will plant them that they may dwell in a place their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more. That hasn't happened yet. The children of wickedness are still afflicting them. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. Remember David wanted to make the Lord a house? And God said, no, you can't do that. You're a man of blood, a man of war. You can't do that. Isn't that interesting that God promises he'll make David a house? Now, that house is in the millennium, and we're going to look at that here in a little bit. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In 2 Samuel 13, 7 verse 13. So God is going to establish a kingdom forever. Forever. Now, he's speaking to David in this, in this instance. David never had and never was promised a heavenly kingdom. It was always earthly. Everything to do with the kingdom in Israel is always focused on the earth. Everything to do with the kingdom in us as the church is always focused in heaven. And so just understand that's kind of the perspective here. When you get to Daniel... He's taken in the Babylonian captivity along with Israel. And while in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that's very troubling. And Daniel's the only one that can tell the dream and the interpretation of it. So if you've never studied this in Daniel 2, it's fascinating because Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And he goes to all of the the wicked occultist astrologers and magicians and, and necromancers in his court. And he says okay, you guys either tell me the dream I had and the interpretation, or else I'm going to kill all of you. And they come to him, Lord, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, no one can tell you what dream you had. Tell us the dream, and we'll tell you the interpretation. And he goes, no, you're just trying to buy time. If you truly can prophesy and do all these things that you said, then you'll be able to tell me what dream I had. And of course, they can't. And he passes on this decree, and Daniel, remember, was made head of the Magi after this, head of that court, but Daniel's in the prison, and he is, he's lumped in with these guys, and so his, his head is on the line, and, he, and the captain of the guard comes to him and tells him what's going on, and Daniel says, okay, go tell the king, just buy me a little bit of time. I'm going to pray. My God will reveal this to us because he knows the secrets of men, And he goes to the Lord, and the Lord gives him the dream and the interpretation of it. It's all in Daniel 2. It's one of the most fascinating prophetic dreams outlined in the entire Bible. Thou, O king, this is Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar now. He comes in, starting in verse 31. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image, the great image whose brightness was excellent stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, and his feet part of iron and part of clay. So there's these five metals in descending order. Now, if you really want to get into it, each one of those has a specific gravity that gets further and further away from water because the kingdoms get less and less and less like God over time. But his legs of iron, his feet are part of iron part of clay. Verse 34 Thou sawest till that a stone was cut without hands. Okay, who is the stone cut without hands? We all know from Psalms and other places in the Bible. It's Jesus. He is the stone the builders rejected has become the headstone of the corner. Anytime you see a rock, a stone in the Bible, ask yourself, does this speak of Jesus? Nine times out of ten, the answer is yes. Thou sawest till a stone was cut without hands which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them into pieces. In verse 35 here, Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken into pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled only in our hearts. No. No. <laughs> It's not what it says. And filled the whole earth, filled the entire earth. Physical, literal kingdom. This is the dream. So Daniel tells him the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand. And certainly that was the case. When Nebuchadnezzar ruled the earth, he ruled the entire earth, the known earth at that time, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. So Babylon is the head of gold. Now remember after this, Nebuchadnezzar becomes very prideful. and He sets up a statue that's all gold of himself. Remember this? And he makes everyone bow down to it and worship it. And if they don't, they go into the fiery furnace Of course, uh, Daniel's three buddies don't do that, and then they get thrown in, but Jesus is in the fire with them and rescues them. In any case, okay, so he's the head of gold. Verse 39 here, And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. See, these kingdoms in descending order get worse and worse and worse. And another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. And as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. And there shall be of it in it of the strength of the iron for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. Now, so when you, when you study this, he, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon's the head of gold, Medo-Persia is the silver, the breast of silver in the arms, the belly was Greece, the brass, and then Rome was the iron, the two legs, and then the feet are the final Antichrist kingdom because it has the ten toes, it's the iron mixed with clay, the ten toes are the ten kings from Daniel 7 and, other, and Revelation 12 and 13, the 10 kings that set up that antichrist kingdom, but the antichrist rises out of it, puts three of them down, the other seven consolidate the power to him, and he ushers in this antichrist ungodly kingdom. Okay, the, and as you saw in verse 42 here, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron, part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawst iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. So there's something about the last Antichrist kingdom that is part iron, part clay, and they can't cleave one to another. That's a, that's a harken back to Genesis 6 where those same fallen angels tried to corrupt the human genome and the human line. God's talking about there's something special and unique about that kingdom that it can't cleave together. It's part man, but part something else. And in the days of these kings, shall the God of heaven, okay, here it is, here's Jesus. In the days of these kings, which kings? The 10 kings, the 10 toes. So you have Babylon, Persia, Greece, with Alexander the Great, Rome, and the two legs of Rome, and they're literally, and historically speaking, there were two legs of Rome. Remember the Western Empire and the Eastern Empire? The Byzantine Empire actually outlasted longer than the western leg. And then these two, these, uh, two feet at the end, where it's all going to kind of come back together and try to take over the earth again. In the days of these kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom? Now, he's, he is making the connection that these are real kingdoms, and historically speaking, these were. These were all real kingdoms that ruled the earth. But in the days of that final kingdom with the two feet and the ten kings, the Antichrist kingdom, the God of heaven is going to set up a kingdom, a real, physical, literal, earthly kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof, sure. See, there, there will never be a kingdom rule the earth again until after Rome, until the Antichrist kingdom. In between those two metals, the iron and then the iron mixed with clay, is a period... We know it to be almost 2,000 years of the church age where we all get the chance to serve God with the Holy Spirit indwelling us because Christ died and the Holy Spirit's given to us. But isn't it fascinating? God compares this coming kingdom to those in the dream, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and then finally, after the Antichrist kingdom, the Messianic kingdom, that it's going to destroy these kingdoms and set up a real physical literal kingdom on the earth, and so this coming kingdom, it's going to engage, Jesus is going to engage in a kinetic physical war with the final Antichrist kingdom, and when? that amazing? I mean, you can't, I just, I know we talk about it a lot here, and we studied it a lot in Revelation, and even in Hebrews some, but the very fact that the Bible teaches very clearly throughout all of Scripture that Jesus is going to come back in the flesh in a glorified state, fight a kinetic physical war with whatever evil is manifesting on the earth during the tribulation and win and wipe them out with the word of his mouth and establish his throne on the earth in Jerusalem, resurrect the Old Testament saints and usher in the millennium is just mind-blowing. It is like, it can boggle your mind that that actually is going to happen. (laughs) But it is. This will be an earthly kingdom with a capital in Jerusalem, and all nations will be subservient to this kingdom. The kingdom will reinstitute some of the feasts and sacrifices. Nations never had to keep the feasts previously. It was only for Israel. But look in Zechariah 14, verse 19. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, God is talking about in the millennium, and this is all over Zechariah, it's an amazing book, but God is talking about in the millennium when these sacrifices are reinstitu- reinstituted and the feasts that the nations have to keep it somehow, and that's incredible. So when you fast forward kind of through the Old Testament, and, and that's just to give you kind of a, a foundation for that the Bible is a, it's a kingdom book. It's all about a kingdom And in the Gospels, when you get to the Gospels, there are two different kingdoms preached, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And it's just my speculation that these are two different things because, I, again, I view the scripture as God's very specific. But in both the Hebrew and the German, the words of and from are the same. And I kind of found that fascinating. And And I personally like to think of the kingdom of heaven more as the kingdom from heaven, because Jesus comes from heaven to establish it on the earth. And if you remember, the royal line was taken from Israel in Jeremiah when God had enough of Israel's rebellion. Jeconiah led the nation into deep idolatry. Remember, uh, Zedekiah and Jeconiah was after him, and the Babylonian captivity is about to take place. And Jeconiah leads them into rebellion in that time when Babylon was on the brink of destroying Jerusalem. And as a result, God pronounces a blood curse on David's line. And this is all in Jeremiah 22, verse 28. Is this man Coniah? Now, Jeconiah and Coniah are the same guy. God calls him Coniah because in the Hebrew, J-E is a, a prefix for God. Okay, this, is this man Coniah? In other words, not one from God. A despised broken idol, is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? So J-E in the Hebrew, it means God. And it's a common prefix in the, to a biblical name. And Ye, or Y-E in the Hebrew, is God. Jesus, that's why Jesus Christ, the source name in Hebrew is Yeshua, which means Ye or God, J-E, and Shua, salvation, God, salvation. All in one word there. In Jeremiah 22, verse twenty-nine, oh earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. So God, if God repeats something three or four times or two or three times when he's saying something, then you need to pay attention. That's why when Jesus stopped over Jerusalem, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's reemphasizing that it's, it's important to understand. And remember, Jesus says, How often I would have gathered you together, but you would not. You rejected me. Okay, in Jeremiah 22, verse 30. So this is a declaration against an earthly kingdom from God. O earth, earth, earth. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Now, we've covered this before, but just as a reminder, because it's so important, Remember, God promised David a kingdom forever. Well, in Jeremiah, you fast forward all this way. In Jeremiah, he pronounces a blood curse on Jeconiah, which is from the seed of David. So how does God get over that? He he back then promised David to have a kingdom forever, but yet here he just pronounced a blood curse on that royal line saying, no one will ever sit on your throne again. No one in Israel will do that. Well, this is this is amazing, and this is what I love about the Bible. Because the more every time you think there is a contradiction somewhere, and you dig in, you'll find a resolution. Because word is God's word is totally infallible, and again, He means exactly what He says. Well, when you get to Numbers 27, you get this uh, weird case of the daughters of Zelophehad, and Zelophehad was a man that only had daughters, and you in the law you could not pass your inheritance on to your daughters unless they married within the tribe they were from, then you could pass it on to your son-in-law. And at that point, the, the inheritance could remain. And you see this in Numbers 27, the daughters, after they get into the land, or in the wilderness, I should say, they approach Moses and request this exception. He goes to God, God grants it, and writes in this exception. And in Numbers 36, verses 10 through 12, in verse 12 here, They were married into the families of the sons of Manasseh and the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of the family of their father. So they followed what God said, they kept it within the tribe. They remind Eliezer of this commandment, this commitment from God in Joshua 17, verses 3 and 4. And it's the law of the beneficiaries. So you had to marry within the tribe in order for your inheritance to stay there. And so when that happened, you could pass on your inheritance. To your son-in-law, and so this is how God gets around this whole issue of the blood curse to keep the kingdom, the kingdom going. Because when you look at in the Gospels, David, his line, there's two different genealogies. In Matthew, it goes through Solomon. In Luke, it goes through Nathan. Well, Jehoiachin, Jeconiah, or Coniah, right there, is in the line of Solomon. So there's a blood curse pronounced, which means Joseph could not inherit and pass it on to Jesus. But if he married within the tribe, Mary, then it could pass on. That inheritance from David goes through the line to Mary and skips through a virgin birth over to Joseph, his son-in-law. And that way, God gets around this whole issue with the blood curse on Jeconiah, but yet Jesus is still going to sit on the throne of David that was promised in 2 Samuel. So when you see when you see this from David, that inheritance that God promised David came through Mary, but she couldn't inherit it. She had to marry within the tribe. Okay, I hope that makes sense. That's how God gets around this, in the, with that exception from in Numbers. So he can keep the kingdom coming. That's the point. When, that's why those genealogies are there in the Bible. So he can keep the kingdom coming. Okay, the kingdom of heaven is used 32 times exclusively in the book of Matthew. And I find that interesting because Matthew is mainly written to the Jews. It contains instructions on what to do during the tribulation. And it is in Matthew that Jesus says they would have ushered in the kingdom had Israel received him. So this is, this is unique. This is really interesting. Matthew 11, verses 12 through 14, and we'll look at Malachi here. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this is Elijah, which was for to come. Now, this, this gets like, this is interesting, because um, I don't know the way to describe it, other than this, this is fascinating, Jesus is telling them that if they would have received him when he was on the earth the first time, it would not have been John the Baptist, Elijah would have been the one coming and they would have ushered in the kingdom. Okay, if you will receive it, this is Elijah which was to come, speaking of John the Baptist. He wouldn't have sent John the Baptist. If, he would have, if they would have received Jesus, he would have sent Elijah instead and they would have been ushering in the kingdom. The kingdom from heaven, the millennial kingdom, real, physical, literal, on the earth, from heaven. Because this is prophesied in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse." See, he promises to send Elijah before he comes that great and dreadful day to set up the kingdom. You even see this kind of dramatized, if anyone's watching The Chosen, you see this dramatized. Remember the, the people that were the uh, disciples of John the Baptist come and they find Jesus and they're like, why aren't you, why aren't you destroying the Romans and setting up the, the throne and the kingdom? And why aren't you, why are they still taxing us and walking around and ruling? And aren't you doing that now? well it was dependent on israel it was dependent solely 100% on israel receiving him now that's why when you fast forward after the church is raptured in the great tribulation the part the biggest reason for that is to push and drive israel to the brink where they petition and they repent for him to come he to set up the kingdom that was promised to david the nation corporately has to repent and request him, all from Hosea 6. Can you go back one, Aaron, real quick? So they could have ushered in the kingdom of heaven had they just received him. Now in this verse in Matthew 11, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence. Can you imagine God's throne being taken by violence? No. I mean, it makes no sense to me that God would be on his throne in heaven And he's going to lose his throne somehow by violence? No, but an earthly kingdom that's required for those people to be repentant and request Jesus, that you could see. There's a requirement, a prerequisite for him to set up the kingdom on the earth, the millennial kingdom. They have to receive him. And we're going to look at, there's three spots in the Bible where Israel rejected God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit finally. And all three of those, they had a chance to usher it in, and they, re- and they refused. The kingdom of God, I like to think of it personally as it's spiritual in nature. It's where God sits on his throne in heaven. It currently dwells inside of us as the church, as its presence on the earth. Look at Luke 17, 20 and 21. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of, co- of God cometh not with observation. In other words, you can't see it. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Now that's interesting. So you and I, the kingdom of God is within us right now. We have the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit, if you are born again, dwelling within you. The kingdom of heaven being a literal, physical kingdom on the earth that Jesus is going to set up and rule and reign from Jerusalem. Now, they were looking for a kingdom, but they were confused on which one was being offered at what time. And that's important to understand why they were being they were confused on this issue because that confusion remains today in some regard in the church. Romans 14, verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's where you and I are right now. We have righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. According to Jesus, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. In John 3, remember this whole discourse with Nicodemus. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you must be born again. It comes not by observation. It's within us right now if you're born again. And to see it, to get into the throne room of the universe, you need to be born again. Now, I find that interesting because I don't... We're going to talk about this a lot next week. But in the new heaven and the new earth after the thousand-year reign... Maybe this is part of why there are walls and gates, and, and you and I are in the New Jerusalem, which never comes to the earth. The New Jerusalem always hovers above the earth, while there's a kingdom established for a thousand years on the earth in Jerusalem. But the New Jerusalem, that could be why. Maybe because there could be something about being born again in, or, in order to see it, to have access to it. And born again in the spirit not just saved. There's people that will never be born again that enter into the millennium that live with Christ on the earth. It's, it's a fascinating study. Nicodemus saith unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. See, I think Jesus is using these terms very specifically It's a spiritual heavenly kingdom that you must be born again in the spirit to have entrance into while the kingdom of heaven was offered to them in Israel to usher in the millennial reign, and they rejected it. Seven times in the book of Acts, the Christians are preaching the kingdom of God, never the kingdom of heaven. It's only in the book of Matthew. It's only contained there. It's offered to the Jews, and they reject it. Okay, you would think if they if the terms were interchangeable, in my mind at least, you would think somewhere else in the Bible he would have used it elsewhere. But seven times in the book of Acts, Acts 1, verse 3, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, by many infallible proofs being seen of them forty days, this is Jesus, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. See, after his resurrection, Jesus only preaches the kingdom of God. But when they believed Philip, this is Acts 8, 12, but when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Acts 14, verse 22, confirming the souls of his disciples, of the disciples, and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. The church has suffered a lot of tribulation uh, more Christians were killed under one, one uh, Roman ruler, one Caesar, than in the entire 20th century combined. You know, the church has, has suffered immense persecution for almost 2,000 years. And we, it's hard, again, much, much like connecting our lives today with a monarchy and a, and a kingdom, it's hard for us to relate to that because we don't really suffer that much persecution here in the United States. Okay. Acts fourteen, twenty-two is what we just read. Acts nineteen, verse eight. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Okay, so he's trying to get them born again. Acts twenty, verse twenty-five. And now behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Acts twenty eight twenty three And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. Acts 28, verse 31, Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding them. So there will be people entering the millennial kingdom, like I mentioned, that survive the tribulation but it's just a challenge question it's something i'm seeking from the lord but are they tr- are they born again you know is their spirit regenerated or do they just accept jesus and move in it's a very interesting question you know what is this earthly kingdom from heaven all about jesus will will rule as king on the earth and david will be the prince ruling in israel God promises to resurrect David to rule in Israel three times in the Bible. Ezekiel, one of the best books of the entire Bible, very, very deep in nature and and awesome to study. Ezekiel 34 verse 24, and I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David. David has been dead for a long time at this point. My servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken it. Ezekiel 37, verse 25, after they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. Okay, he's speaking of an earthly, physical, literal kingdom. He promised Abraham the land from the river Nile in Egypt to the river Euphrates in Iraq, that land. And next week, when we dive into this a little deeper, we're gonna look at the land as partitioned by God In the millennium, in Ezekiel, he lays out the floor plan of the palace, which tribes will have which land, and which land is for the prince, David, in the millennium. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. We're just about finished, hang with me here. And they shall dwell therein, even they, their children, and their children's children, forever, forever. He promises forever. And my servant, David, Shall be their prince forever. See, D- God had a king in mind for Israel all along, David, to rule over them. Jesus is going to rule over the earth, David over Israel. In Jeremiah 30, verse 9, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. He's going to resurrect David when he steps foot back on the earth. So, what is this earthly? kingdom all about again. It's Jeremiah 23, 5. Look at this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice only in heaven? No, in the earth. I cannot wait for that. I personally cannot wait for a righteous king to rule over the earth that executes justice and judgment in a way in the millennium and from, from there forever after. There is no sin. It's dealt with immediately. He's not going to be voted out. He's not going to be uh, usurped from his throne. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Then he's loosed one last time, and there's a whole bunch of nations that rebel, and God just wipes them out with a pillar of fire from heaven. Look at Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, one of my favorite Christmas time verses. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government, you and I get to govern with Jesus. We are co-laborers, co-heirs with Christ from Romans. So we get to govern with him. That's why we come back with him in Revelation 19 to help set up this kingdom. Shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. That's not just increase, in terms of number, but it's size. Somehow his government, when he sets up his throne, is going to outgrow, I think probably outgrow the earth in some some aspects. It's gonna be interdimensional. There will be no ceasing of it. Imagine, you know, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand years into it, when there are trillions of people new that you and I get to meet. And we get to share with them a testimony, right, about what Jesus did in our lives. We lived in that that unique time of about 2,000 years where the Holy Spirit from God indwelled us personally, never to, never to happen again. We have more power and authority than I think any of us realize, because the living God lives within you. And when you walk into a room today, you have that authority. And don't take that lightly. When your kids are in school, if they're saved, they have authority in that room. They have authority to walk in. You have authority on those days when you get to walk around the school to pray over that land, right? To keep the attack from the enemy out of our schools, to keep the attack from the enemy out of our families, out of our church. You and I carry a lot of authority. You're a light when you walk into a room and you get the opportunity based on what you do right now to help set up the kingdom with Jesus on the earth and to rule and reign with him. It's amazing, There will be no end of the increase of his government upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it. David's throne is not a heavenly throne. It's an earthly, physical throne ruling over a kingdom. This is the same promise the angel Gabriel had to Mary in Luke, that her son would sit upon the throne of David forever. That throne didn't exist when Rome ruled the world, but it will again. When you and I get raptured out of here, and the restraining Holy Spirit is removed, and the Antichrist is allowed to set up his kingdom for seven years, and Israel's driven to the brink, and they petition God. They rejected Him when He walked on the earth, but when they petition Him, finally, from Hosea 5:15, where God said, "I will go to my place, but I will return. I will return in their affliction, and they will seek Me earnestly." And then I'll come back in Hosea 6 as their prayer, the first few verses. So next week, we're going to dive deeper into, the, into some of the parables about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, kind of that difference, especially in Matthew. I think it's going to be really a really unique study. I, wanted to, I didn't leave these in the notes, but I wanted you guys to get these. Okay, three times, three times in the Bible, Israel rejects God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, they reject the Father in 1 Samuel 8, 6, and 7. Rejecting the Father. I'll put these in the notes for next week, but I want you to leave with this thought. 1 Samuel 8, 6, and 7. But the the thing displeased Samuel. Remember, they wanted a king, an earthly king. When they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed unto the Lord, and the Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. See, they reject the Father right there in 1 Samuel 8. Matthew 21, there's, these are kind of all over the Gospels where they reject the Son, obviously, so many times. Think about what Pilate says when he writes on the cross, uh, the King of the Jews. Remember, they come to him and say, don't write the, that he's the King of the Jews, write that he said he's the King of the Jews. And Pilate wrote it in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, three languages, and Pilate, remember his response, what I have written, I have written. He is the king of the Jews. He's the king of the universe, but he's specifically the king of the Jews. We serve a Jewish king that is going to set up a kingdom on the earth. In Acts uh, or Matthew 21, 37 through 39, they reject the son. Remember Jesus' parable? But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, they will reverence my son, But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. They rejected the son. When Stephen is stoned in Acts 7, they reject the Holy Spirit. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, this is Acts 7, verse 51, and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. So they rejected the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, if they wouldn't have rejected the Holy Spirit, Jesus would have come right then and set it up, right at that moment, because, you know this, because he is standing. I, I think this is fascinating. And When Stephen is stoned, remember he sees in heaven when he's stoned? This is in Acts 7, verse 55. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Nowhere in the Bible elsewhere is Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He's always sitting. Remember in Psalms, God said, come and sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He was standing ready to usher it in. If they just would have accepted him, if they would have said, Stephen, you're right, we messed up. Hosea 5.15, Hosea 6, all these other prophecies, we are sorry. Lord Jesus, we messed up, we rejected you. He, would have, he was standing up at the ready, ready to come back. But everywhere else, he's sitting now. When you get to Revelation 3, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Because there was the final rejection, he's sitting and he's waiting until he removes the church the Antichrist is allowed to rise up and enter and take a kingdom that Daniel saw in chapter two with the feet, the 10 toes. After that seven-year period, we come back with him in Revelation 19 and we get to set up the kingdom from heaven with him. Okay, so now if you, the, the to close with one final thought here, why this is important, I think to understand the difference in these, in this dispensation, so to speak. Um. A lot of the church for many, many decades has rejected the fact that Jesus will rule and reign from a throne in Jerusalem, and that he's, he, they think he's finished with the Jewish people, he's put them aside, and the church has inherited all of those promises. But when you study, and I just gave you a, a very small portion of the verses where God promises this to Israel, none of them are conditional. None of them say, but when you reject me, I'm going to take everything I promised you and give it to the church. Everywhere in Israel, their future prophetically is on the earth. Everywhere for us as the church prophetically, it's in heaven. And they're two different exclusive groups. Now, Jewish people can be a part of the church right now, but the church is made up of Jew and Gentile with the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And you'll find this a lot. This, it's called replacement theology, kingdom now theology. You'll find this kind of throughout, kind of sprinkled around the body of Christ. But when you blur the lines, it can raise to anti-Semitism where you think that God's done with the Jews. That's the extreme case. That's actually part of what led to World War II was that the church in Germany thought, yeah, God's done with the Jews. We don't care what happens to them. And it's quite the opposite. God never said he was finished with them he put it on pause until we are removed. And then once again, he works through the entire planet earth, through Israel, just like all the times before. It's amazing, amazing prophetically. And again, Acts 17, applies. I can't stress that enough. You know, don't just take my word up here for all of this. But the whole point is that there is a kingdom coming and we'll look at it just a little bit further. I think I've got a diagram for you guys next week to hopefully this all makes sense. But, these warnings in Hebrews, they're here for us as the church because we have a great inheritance to look forward to. And we've just got to press on and hold on to Jesus and continue to serve him and not drift. Don't let your heart harden. Don't fail to mature. Don't commit willful sin. And don't ultimately refuse God. That's, that's the key. Stay strong in our walk with him. Okay, so we've got to be watchful. We have to be watchful because he is coming back to set up a kingdom. And before that happens, he's going to take us home. And so as you see blindness in part start to fall off of Israel, then know that it's getting close. Because there's one time Jesus comes back to meet us in the air to gather his church from 1 Thessalonians 4. The second time he comes back, steps foot on the earth, and we are with him from Revelation 19, Zechariah 14, and all over the Old Testament. It's everywhere. He's returning to the earth in power. These are two different events. So he's got he's to get us out of here. So if you're here and you're not born again, or if, you've, if you found us online, it's really simple. Romans ten nine, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Just do that and you can get born again and forever have a place in these kingdoms these kingdoms with God, it's amazing. Come and take your place next to him right now. It's that simple. Instantaneously, you are born again in the spirit. So Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, I thank you for the deep study of your word and for your word that is everlasting and that you are so specific in what you wrote down for us. I thank you that we can use it to edify us and to encourage us and to build us up so that we can go out and serve you in a mighty way. God, thank you so much for the book of Hebrews. And Lord, as we, as we prepare to wrap this up, we pray that you would give us all eyes to see on what's going on in the world around us and what we have to look forward to in you. God, thank you. Be with us as we leave this place and give us a restful, peaceful week, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name, amen.